You know, we focused a lot on politicians who've made a career of talking about transparency and accountability and ending corruption. And here they are, many of these same politicians benefiting from the same secretive structures that the world's most infamous crooks have used at the same time. Welcome back to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. In today's episode, we are thrilled to welcome Will Fitzgibbon on the podcast. Will is a senior reporter at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or short, ICIJ. The ICIJ has been a lot in the news lately, since they uncovered the so-called Pandora Papers. And Will played a major role in this investigation. And we are very grateful that he took some time out of his very busy schedule to talk with us about the Pandora Papers, the journalistic process behind uncovering them, and their implications for society. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you. And first of all, thank you so much for your impressive work that you and your colleagues at the ICIJ had done over the last weeks on the Pandora Papers. So before we dive into today's content, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in investigative journalism and in illicit finance in particular. Sure, Chris, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here as well, but still quite tired. I am a reporter with ICIJ. I've been here for six or seven years now working in the Washington, D.C. office I am a reporter and I also coordinate our partnerships with journalists in Africa and the Middle East. And I've really been around and involved in many of the offshore and financial stories that your readers will have or listeners will have heard of from Swiss leaks to Panama Papers to FinCEN Files to Luanda leaks to Pandora Papers now. Uh, I think like so many journalists who work on these projects, I didn't start my journalism career with a interest or a specialization in finance. Uh, I'm one of those reporters who five years ago wouldn't have known the difference between a Panamanian foundation and a Singaporean trust. But now I'm pretty confident and competent when it comes to those kind of things. Yeah, I, I'm such a nerd now, I suppose, that a few months ago I became a certified anti-money laundering specialist, which is kind of fun, just because I thought if I ruin my eyesight by staring at spreadsheets for six or seven years, I may as well have a bit of piece of paper that goes along with it. Great, thank you. Yeah, excited to have such an expert here on the podcast today. So let's dive right in. Uh, so the Pandora Papers made a lot of uh, headlines over the last weeks. And maybe you could give our listeners a quick rundown of what the Pandora Papers are and how you were involved in uh, revealing them. I don't think that there's anybody out there who haven't heard of it yet, but maybe... Somebody who was asleep for the last few weeks, <laughs> maybe just sure, a big rundown. Sure, for anyone who was living under a rock for the past <laughs> yeah, few exactly. weeks. Really, the Pandora Papers is the largest investigation of journalists in history who took almost 12 million confidential documents that came from 14 different offshore corporate service providers. And that's important for reasons we'll get back to in a moment. But these 12 million documents show the secretive financial deals and hideaways of More than 300 politicians, including 35 current and former heads of state, from presidents to prime ministers, to celebrities like Elton John, criminals like Robert Durst, the murderer, 
in the US, for example, and billionaires and millionaires around the world. So it's really an unprecedented look at how the powerful and elite of our world play and operate in a different financial world from the rest of us. And like I said, the difference with the Pandora Papers or one of the huge differences, say from the Panama Papers, is that this time we have documents leaked from 14 corporate service providers. And that's significant because the Panama Papers focused on Mossack Fonseca, a big operator, but only one operator in the offshore world. Now we can basically say, look, the whole model appears to be rotten because we've got criminals and politicians who've hidden assets in multiple tax havens around the world and working through multiple corporate service providers. And that, according to experts we spoke to, suggests really that the whole system is ripe for abuse rather than it being a problem of just one bad apple. And was there something in particular that that surprised you when you went through it? Or was it like we, we've seen the story before, maybe we had the Panama Papers, we had the FinCEN files, we had the Paradise Papers. Mm. Or was, was there something that, that stood out for you when you saw all the reporting on it? I think at least two things surprised me. The first was how many politicians and political figures were involved. You know, three presidents from Africa, for example. In some cases, two or three prime ministers and presidents of one country alone, like Lebanon and Panama, for example. And that really was sobering in terms of confirming the point that you know, the political and business elite of all countries, no matter whether they're conservative or liberal, left or right, you know, new or old, uh, are using this secretive financial system, often in contrast to the rhetoric that they use publicly. You know, we focused a lot on politicians who've made a career of talking about transparency and accountability and ending corruption. And here they are, many of these same politicians benefiting from the same secretive structures that the world's most infamous crooks have used at the same time. Even if it's not, in the case of many politicians, illegal. I think, you know, the offshore world makes strange bedfellows. And the reality is, if you're a politician who obscures assets in Panama, the British Virgin Islands, the Seychelles, or the United Arab Emirates, then you're likely to be doing so in the company of people wanted for murder, sexual crimes, and theft, for example. And then the other surprise, I think, And novelty of the Pandora Papers is that for the first time, we had significant documentation about the role of the United States as a tax haven. That's been a rumor that many of us have spoken about and heard about for a long time, but we haven't really had records that have enabled us to say, here are some of the clients that have chosen places in the United States for financial secrecy. And for the first time, the Pandora Papers could do that, which was hugely important because the narrative for so long has been that tax havens and the offshore system is enabled by these small, often poor or middle-income countries, you know, Panama, the British Virgin Islands, uh, the Seychelles, whereas really, just like so many experts have been warning and screaming for the rooftops for years, it's really places like the United States and the United Arab Emirates and Singapore that are as problematic, if not more, and increasingly taking the business of traditional tax havens. Something we saw in the Pandora Papers was how millionaires and billionaires who for decades had used trusts in Typical tax havens like Jersey or the British Virgin Islands or Bermuda or the Bahamas in the past three or four years were actually leaving those tax havens behind and instead creating new offshore structures in places like South Dakota and Nevada. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I guess for most citizens, the whole aspect of uh, shell companies and offshore tax havens is very complex and hardly understandable uh, and for good reason. <laughs> But when you deal 
more closely with it. Did you recognize, and we don't want to give our listeners a how-to, but uh, did you recognize some patterns that seem to work when people are using these shell companies? So how, how are they, in fact, hiding their wealth in these shell companies? Yeah, I think the question of complexity is important because everyone should know that offshore structures are complex by design. The whole purpose is to make it difficult for tax inspectors, for police, for journalists and for members of the public to understand so that we lose interest. And that's part of why rich and powerful people do this, because they know that if they are ever caught by the tax office, they can walk, their lawyers can walk into the tax office, slam down a huge dictionary or encyclopedia's worth of pages and confuse tax inspectors so much that, you know, they'll never get in trouble. So I think something I enjoy about this work is basically seeing through that bullet, that BS, to use a, a crude term, and asking really what's going on here. And that when we get to politicians and people who are using offshore is secret, because ultimately the question always needs to be, why? Why did you choose these different layers of secrecy? And that, I think, is the trend that emerges. It's quite rare that politicians and people will use the simplest offshore option. You know, the simplest option is, Your accountant or your private banker in Switzerland orders you a company in the British Virgin Islands, you become their owner of it, and your name appears as shareholder, director, and beneficial owner, for example. But what we see time and time again is politicians and powerful people engage in extra steps of layering, so-called layering, uh, which helps further remove the person's name from the company in question on public and non-public documents. So we'll see the use of nominee shareholders or nominee directors. We'll see the use of powers of attorney being granted to the best friend of a politician instead of in the, friend, in the politician's name themselves. Or we'll see, for example, a company, a trust in South Dakota that owns shares in a company in the British Virgin Islands that then owns assets in a company like the Dominican Republic, for example. So layering, I think, is one of the most widespread practices in the offshore world, because every layer that you add is going to make it harder for journalists and more importantly, tax inspectors and law enforcement to find out what's really going on. Great. As a communication researcher, I'm of course also interested in the whole coordination of such a huge work involving so many journalists. It seems like for one week, my whole Twitter feed was full only of reporting about the Pandora Papers. And this Good. seems to be a very coordinated effort of the ICIJ. So maybe you can walk us through this journalistic <coughs> process a little bit. What happens once you receive such a huge data leak? And it is a coordinated effort, Chris. We, I think, recognize the complexity of the stories and the importance of the stories and the power of the people who we're writing about. And for these stories to be published individually without any coordination, I think would really blunt and lessen the potential impact. And we've already seen plenty of impact. So that's why ICOJ invests a lot of time and money in coordinating these investigations. Now, we've done it for a number of years now, so it's not like Pandora Papers happened overnight. We could only do it because we had successful projects like the Panama Papers and Swiss Leaks you know, four, five, six years ago. That gives us the knowledge of journalists who we are comfortable working with, the knowledge of journalists who we trust and who trust us. You know, ICOJ now, uh, reporters like me and my colleagues like Shilla Alecci, for example, have built up an expertise in this area, which enables us to help reporters from Nepal to uh, Ecuador understand what the documents say. 
And we also have to trust these reporters. You know, we grant every reporter on the project, 600 of them, access to the Pandora Papers database. That's a secure server that ICAJ has created, that ICAJ pays for, and that allows all reporters, whether or not you're in Hamburg or Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, to search the data for companies' names or information of interest. And then we have you know, a very active and communicative system over the course of a year or two, uh, led by our project manager, where all journalists are encouraged to share anything that they find and everything they find. That's really a basic principle of ICAJ too, is that you agree to collaborate with ICAJ on the condition that you will share all of your findings. So if you're a German reporter and you find you know, the name of Gerhard Schroeder, you have to share that with 600 other reporters on this open communication space. Of course, sometimes that makes journalists uncomfortable, uncomfortable at the idea of giving up their quote-unquote scoop. But we've found that that's how these collaborations work because other reporters will do it vice versa. You know, I was the first uh, reporter on the Pandora Papers to find the name Elton John in the data. I didn't write about Elton John and I only found his name because I was searching for the word Togo, Togo, the small West African country. And Togo in the documents, the computer misread as logo and Elton John was setting up uh, shell companies to help manage his image rights and his logos, for example. So that I think is a fun example of how Journalists working together can find more stories than if they were just working on their own. And that's really one of the basis elements of an ICRJ collaboration. And it's, not, and it's not easy. You know, everyone talks about collaboration now because it's very sexy and, you know, it's a, it's a hot topic. But there are lots of tears. There are lots of shouting matches. There are lots of times when I wish I could, like, put a pin into a voodoo doll of various journalists around the world who have disappointed me. But ultimately, you learn to get over those challenges. And in the end, it's it usually pays off. And that's why we've seen the success of the Pandora Papers so far. So that was actually the perfect transition to my next question, because it seems that it was more like a technological glitch that uh, made you find Alton John in the data. And because in the past, we had a, a couple of podcast episodes talking about the potential of digital technologies mm -hmm. in the fight against corruption and illicit finance. And I can only imagine that technology might help you journalists to sift all these millions of documents that nobody can read on, on their own. So how is technology used in the whole process? Well, the Pandora Papers quite simply wouldn't be possible without technology and advances in technology. That includes the very first step, which is receiving the data and then uploading 12 million files onto this one searchable server, OCRing everything, making sure that a fax from the 1980s is just as searchable as an email sent from 2019, you know, that the passport of the King of Jordan can be searched just like, in some cases, a handwritten note from 1992. So the, the data is incredibly important like that because Let's remember, most journalists don't spend all of their time on the Pandora Papers. I'm one of those rare journalists because my job at ICAJ is to focus solely on ICAJ. But most reporters, Sudhirja Zaitung at uh, the Indian Express, are kind of dipping in every now and again. So they don't have time to read 5,000 pages a day in the hope that they'll find one interesting revelation. You know, of course, beyond just the, day, the searchable database in and of itself, um, we've got a team of data journalists and others who work with ICIJ who are increasingly using tools like scraping, you know, simple things like uh, uploading a spreadsheet of all of the uh, German members of parliament, all of the members of the European parliament, for example, to the database to see what kind of matching is possible. 
uh, as many of your listeners will know, those kind of dirty or fuzzy matching results are often kind of unhelpful and very uh, and still take a long time to sift through, but at least it's a starting point. So we do that with everyone from all the members of the US Congress to everyone on the FBI's most wanted list to everyone on the US and European sanctions list. Um, we're also doing more AI constantly, you know, with my focuses, for example, on South Dakota. There are two options, right? I could spend my time literally searching through every result with the word South Dakota in it through 12 million records, or I could enlist the assistance of uh, artificial intelligence or data journalists who can help me design terminologies that will more specifically search for what I wanted, specific legislation or specific language around trust agreements or around company incorporation certificates that will further narrow my search results and save me a lot of time. Well, that's very interesting. What I was wondering, when you have published uh, all the reporting and then maybe <clears throat> one year passes or two years, oh, I don't know how many years, but is there like a, a very structured mechanism to evaluate your work? Do you look at how often it is picked up by other media outlets or do you even look at social media attention or also maybe policy change in a way? We definitely do that. I mean, ICAJ is a nonprofit organization, so we need to justify our work and promote our work so that funders and donors, you know, from individuals to large foundations keep giving us money because if we don't get money, there's not going to be another Pandora Papers. Um, so we definitely do that. Uh, the good thing about collaboration, again, is we have eyes and ears of journalists in more than 100 countries. So we get constant updates from reporters about, you know, the uh, tax revenue authority in Canada has announced this or you know, new legislation in Ecuador that might be this. So that's always helpful for us to keep a running list of policy changes, legislative reform, criminal charges, tax investigations. We've done that for the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers. Of course, that's uh, an imperfect science for sure. You know, there are some countries like South Korea that refuse to state publicly how many investigations have been open because of the Panama Papers, even though we know there have been many. So some governments refuse to share information. Uh, others just don't collect it. But it's something that we try and keep on top of as much as possible, for sure. Same thing with the media reports and stories. Not forgetting, of course, that really the Pandora Papers is just at the start of its life cycle. We will be adding more journalists to the data, giving more journalists from more countries access to have a look. And our experience tells us that there'll be plenty of more important stories that will come out over the weeks and years ahead. And that government responses take a long time. After the Panama Papers, it took the United States government four or five years to announce criminal charges against four people. You know, so I'm usually very pessimistic, but when it comes to this kind of thing, I'm less pessimistic because I know that in many countries, it's sensitive and it takes a long time for something like the Pandora Papers to be visualized in a kind of legal or policy context. And speaking of that, I'd like to circle back to a point that you mentioned in the beginning and talk a little bit about the implications of the Pandora Papers, because you mentioned that the Pandora Papers revealed that the Panama Papers was not like an accident. It was a system of illicit finance, of tax havens that was uh, very sophisticated. So do you think that, that something has changed after the Panama Papers? Or did we learn anything from it? Or what do you expect will be the consequence of all the reporting this time? Will it be that individuals maybe get prosecuted, but the whole system will stay the same? Or do you think that this will trigger some sort of policy response to, to actually tackle this 
global problem of, of, of the financial system. I think there definitely have been changes and improvements. Some countries now are not as problematic as they were before. I think Panama is probably one of them. The British Virgin Islands, the Bahamas, they've introduced beneficial ownership legislation in 2017, 2018. And we see in the Pandora Papers how some clients around the world respond to that. You know, some people choose just to share their beneficial ownership information with BVI authorities. Others, unfortunately, we've seen the documents decide that they're going to relocate their secretive company to a tax haven where they don't have to share their beneficial ownership information. So I think there have been improvements, but we know from experience that people who want to conceal their assets, people who want to commit crimes, to take advantage of the offshore system and its inbuilt secrecy, do have a range of other jurisdictions and offers out there, right? It could be from United Arab Emirates. It could be the United States. There are plenty of places that are willing to take up the business of offshore centers that close down or that clean up their act. You know, but that's not going to be everyone. There are some people who are just going to suck it up and say, sure, you know what? I'm just going to uh, be more transparent about these things. I think the sobering lesson from the Pandora Papers is that so many of the politicians who could change things in terms of rhetoric, but more importantly, in terms of laws and regulations, are active participants in the system and are strongly reacting to the Pandora Papers saying that they've done nothing wrong, like the president of Kenya, for example, who just the other day refused even to admit that his name appears in the Pandora Papers, rather than acknowledging that his name does appear in that and then committing to example for greater transparency when it comes to uh, politicians or politically exposed people uh, having assets or interests in offshore, offshore entities. So I think that's the sour note that's been left in my mouth and many people's mouths from the Pandora Papers is how can we decouple politics from the system of offshore finance in a way that means that meaningful reform uh, will be possible? Because currently, I guess, the Pandora Papers shows that we're not there yet. Yeah, and regarding this point, I think the Pandora Papers were really an eye-opener to many because um, it really showed that those who have the power to change the system just don't have the incentives to do so because they are themselves are profiting so much from it. So I think this puts some, well, I don't want to say pressure, but some responsibility maybe in the hands of the civil society. So what do you think we as a civil society can do to push for such change? I think it's very important that civil society and people who consume the revelations and media of the Pandora Papers keep giving public demonstrations of their interest and in how they care about it. I think the worst thing that can happen is for people just to shrug their shoulders and say, well, politicians are always going to do this or criminals are always going to do this. Or, you know, the criticism we see a lot, which is, well, you haven't told us anything illegal here, so why should we care? But I always say, you know, if, if the uh, baseline for any journalism story was criminality, then you wouldn't have a very thick newspaper, right? We wouldn't have heard about Donald Trump for the past five or six years, for example if it required proven allegations of criminality before journalists wrote anything. You know, I think if you think about some of the biggest impacts that happened from the Panama Papers, it was protests. It was Icelandic people protesting in the street after revelations about their prime minister. It was Pakistanis protesting about the family of Nawaz Sharif, for example. So I think that kind of public engagement shows just how, just how influential public responses can be. And by the same token, Countries where we don't really see much public response at all are often those where we don't see consequential uh, changes. You know, Nigeria, for example, 
has had a huge and long track record of very senior politicians from the president of the Senate to governors and former governors having, according to media reports in Nigeria, literally broken laws there about not declaring assets. But, you know, no one to my knowledge has been charged there. For example, we haven't seen people in the streets en masse. And I do think that keeping the fires burning and showing politicians that it's not just ICIJ and journalists who care about this topic, but it has filtered down to uh, quote unquote average people who find it important. I think that's going to be something we're all going to have to keep pressing. All right. I know you're very short on time. So um, I have one question before oh. we end. And uh, and it's something that I noticed in an interview with Frederick Obermeier uh, with the Deutsche Welle. And he mentioned that at the Süddeutsche Zeitung, it is the editorial policy not to share the investigations with state authorities. So I wanted to ask whether this is common practice among <laughs> the journalists associated with ICIJ and I, I definitely understand the reasoning behind it, but maybe some people would also argue that all the work that you have done in revealing these stories also might be helpful for prosecutors to fight against tax evasion more efficiently. Well, What the is data is definitely useful for governments. We've been getting calls and emails from governments around the world ever since the Pandora Papers broke. It was the same with Panama Papers and Paradise Papers. But you're right, we don't share any of the documents with non-journalists. You know, we are an organization of journalists and goodness knows we're already accused by all of our haters of working for the CIA and working for the KGB and working for Mossad and working for the Mukbarat in Jordan. So everyone already who want, everyone already who has a conspiracy theory has a conspiracy theory about us. I think the reason why we, one of the reasons we don't share the data is governments, especially in countries in Europe and Northern America, are powerful entities that have the power to obtain this information on their own. And if they don't, then that tells us even something more horrifying about the state of international information sharing, right? All of this information comes from regulated entities within countries that are members of the OECD, that are members and signatories of international conventions on information exchange. And it really shouldn't be down to journalists to be spoon feeding information to government authorities like the IRS or like the HMRC or like the German police when there exist frameworks in place for that information to be obtained otherwise and through official state-sanctioned channels. And I think everyone could understand that it would be an incredible slippery slope if ICIJ were to start handing out records to the government of Brazil, to the government of Indonesia, or to the government of Russia, for example. If governments want to act on this, they have the power to act on this. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Usually we ask our guests in the end about the pick of the podcast. So do you have a TV series or a movie or a documentary or anything related to the work that you've done and the work of the other investigative journalism dealing with, with these intricate problems that you could recommend to our listeners? I think in the Pandora Papers, I'd recommend three things. One is the 20-minute documentary done by Kenyan investigative journalists on the president there. That was the first African television investigation that an ICIJ project has ever had. And they did a beautiful job of introducing these complex issues to an audience who might not know of them. Uh, I think the Washington Post podcast on the role of the United States as a tax haven is excellent. That came out last Monday. And there's also a really great video on the interconnection between environmental damage and the secrecy of the offshore jurisdiction on ICIJ's website produced by my colleague Sheila Alecci. And that I think is important because it reminds people that 
this secretive offshore financial system isn't just about rich people getting richer and it's not just about politicians being cynical politicians and hiding things from their citizens. It's also a key feature of how environmental damage and even environmental crimes are perpetrated on some of the world's most vulnerable communities. Yeah, fantastic. We will link to that in the show notes of the episode. Right. Uh, I know it must be crazy uh, at the ICIJ. It is a uh, So I'm very, very grateful that you found the time in your busy schedule to talk Thanks, to us Chris. today. I really so, appreciate the invitation. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Will's work at ICIJ, check out the show notes. For related content, also make sure to listen to some of our previous episodes. We already recorded two separate ones with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Frederik Obermeier who uncovered the Panama Papers with his colleagues. Episode 6 is about the Panama Papers and episode 39 deals with the FinCEN files. Also make sure to check out episode 18 with David Barbosa, another Pulitzer Prize winner. In this episode, David talks about his journalistic work in uncovering hidden wealth by Chinese elites. Finally, some housekeeping. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We look forward to meeting you under the hashtag KickbackMeetup. If you want to support the podcast even further, write us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you can spare a few bucks, become a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash kickback podcast kickback is a joint production by the interdisciplinary corruption research network and the global anti-corruption blog it is made by niels kobus matthew stevenson jonathan kleinpers and me christopher starke with music by kaihan gorkar that's it for today have a great week